I'm supposed to be uh, a living legend. Is that right? The one thing I think that really stands by a human being is their work. Let's say I hope I'm finding happiness. Right? You don't manufacture stars. Mm. You can't turn them out. There were uh, nowadays. You see them. They're all out of the same cookie cutter. You know. Welcome. You're listening to the Valley of the Dolls podcast. I'm Paul Walsh, and I'm going to be your host. I've been a classic Hollywood fan for over 20 years, so I'm really, really excited to be launching this brand new podcast. I'm looking to share my research and have conversations around specific areas of a subject's career, getting into the detail and discussing some areas that perhaps aren't as well known. In this episode, I'm going to be looking at the television career of Judy Garland. I'll be discussing the highs and lows of perhaps this often overlooked area of her work an area which became one of her primary entertainment mediums during the last 14 years of her career. Later, I'll be joining conversation with my friend and fellow Judy Garland enthusiast, Ben Garner, as we get more conversational about Judy Garland on television. From 1955 to 1969, Judy Garland would have over 30 television appearances, plus her own weekly television show for CBS, The Judy Garland Show. The same period is also a fast-paced time of growth for the new medium, and when looking at her first variety shows to her final talk show appearances, the difference is huge. Okay, this is where we need to pause and go back. Eight years back. Judy Garland's first foray into television in the mid-1950s got off to a pretty bumpy start, mainly due to creative differences, personal issues, and legal disputes with networks. It was also a new medium, and there were limitations as to what could be achieved. Prior to the common use of videotape in 1957, many television broadcasts were made live with multiple cameras and set changes. A 90-minute drama, for example, might require a dozen sets and just as many cameras. All costume and makeup changes would be happening during a very brief commercial break. There was no such thing as second takes. Many artists from the film industry who were being lured to television by huge salaries for essentially a 30- or 60-minute live performance were pretty nervous about the possibility of making a mistake in front of 10 million viewers television was previously seen by many in the film community as the enemy and where B-list movie stars would go before falling into obscurity. Times, however, were changing. By the time Judy Garland first entered the homes of Americans in September 1955, she'd already made 29 feature films, hundreds of radio appearances, and completed a sold-out concert tour, including a record-breaking 19-week engagement at the Palace Theatre in New York. Earlier in the year, she'd received a Best Actress Oscar nomination for her performance in the 1954 version of A Star Is Born. This loss to Grace Kelly still remains a pretty controversial sore spot for Garland and film fans alike. The film was struggling to recover back its $6 million production budget after a grueling 18-month production, which, combined with the Oscar loss, really put a stop to future film plans that had been in place. Judy turned down a record $50,000 salary for a television production of The Heiress with her Star Is Born co-star James Mason, and dropped out of an appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show a few hours before an appearance due to nerves. Judy's television debut came at the request of Henry Ford himself. Ford Motors was sponsoring a monthly colour variety show for television on the CBS network, and Ford wanted Judy to launch the season. She was offered a $100,000 salary with her third husband and manager, Sid Luft, receiving a $10,000 cut. She completed one month of rehearsal before falling sick with laryngitis just before the broadcast. This was no doubt due to the strain and pressure she applied to herself in this new environment that was television. As was well known in the industry, when Judy was nervous or stressed, she was likely to get sick on you. She had reservations around how she would look on television due to the limitations on lighting, camera angles, and just being heavier than her typical film wave following the birth of her third child, Joey, earlier in the year. In order to get some rest, 
before the show, she took a substantial amount of sleeping pills in the morning and was barely able to shake it off the effects before the cameras went live. But shake it off she did, and despite not being in the best voice due to illness, she managed to knock it out of the park and the show went off without a glitch. I watch television a lot and, and I enjoy it very much, but I always have the weird feeling that the people up there who are singing and smiling can see me actually sitting in my living room. But that's not true, because I can't see anybody. <laughs> Despite all the backstage drama, the special was a ratings smash and attracted the largest television viewing audience ever for a special to that date. Although the original broadcast was in color, there is a surviving black and white kind scope copy, which remains. The Ford Star Jubilee, as it was called, was an experiment for both CBS and Judy. The deal was initially a non-exclusive arrangement, which required no commitment from either party once the show was completed. However, following the success of the special, there was an increased amount of confidence on both sides. And in December 1955, Judy signed a five-year contract with CBS. This called for five annual color specials, which would net her a salary of over $400,000. Her next special for the 1956 season would be a 30-minute presentation of the General Electric Theatre. With a fraction of the running time of the previous special at 90 minutes, the advantage of critics' feedback from her first show, this show was very different. Judy had lost weight, opted for a more youthful wardrobe, and the set was styled in a modern, minimal setting inspired by photographer Richard Avedon. Judy had injured her foot during rehearsal, and it was placed in a cast right up until airtime. She learnt many of the moves and dances from visuals while resting up, and minutes before she went on, the cast was removed and she went out on set in four-inch heels. I have a feeling that there's much too much talk going on in the world today, so you're going to get very little from me. But I'm, I'm a singer, and I just like to sing, so why don't we go? Come on. The critics were harsh. Some commented that Judy was not in best voice and disliked the song repertoire that wasn't her usual. Some of the pre-recorded tracks were made when her voice was in poorer shape than on the night of the actual broadcast. Other critics felt her costumes to be far too revealing, and some sequences were even removed from future syndication due to her displaying what was considered to be too much leg. The ratings for the show, however, were once again strong, but the numerous negative headlines around her personal life, combined with mixed reviews from the two specials, had pretty much worked against her. Judy Garland's public image around the mid to late 1950s was that of a troubled former movie star who appeared sporadically and not at her best. CBS was a network whose main priority was ratings, which pleased the sponsors, which increased revenue. This was the one area where Judy was delivering. Sure enough, in early 1957, plans were underway for her third color special, which would be the second in the five-year deal signed 18 months previously. Judy had concerns that the same variety show concept could be repetitive, and it clearly focused more on the mixed reviews from the two previous specials as opposed to the ratings. Most of these reviews were directed around her appearance, vocals, and the format of the show. Not blind to the outstanding success of other shows such as I Love Lucy, she suggested a comedy or a play with music. CBS was not about to move away from its winnings rating formula. The contract in place, however, gave Judy the right to final approval over script. Knowing this, the network submitted a four-page outline which was essentially a mix of her New York and Las Vegas concerts. Judy rejected the outline for risk of making her current concert material stale and on the basis that the four-page outline was not a final script. CBS knew that they were in a contractual bind and following an anonymous comment from an executive to a New York columnist hinting that the network was ready to call the whole thing off, an ugly legal battle flooded the headlines. The publicity did nothing to help Judy's tarnished public image as the executive was quoted that the reason Judy didn't want to work was because, quote, she thinks she's terribly fat, unquote. The whole incident struck a nerve with Judy, and while the legal battle remained unresolved, she avoided the medium for the rest of the decade. Rumors circulated about a possible special with Mickey Rooney and a one-hour Born in the Trunk special. There was even a brief conversation of a weekly series. 
but none of these projects ever went past the conversation stage. Television wasn't the only area which she avoided, as film roles in Butterfield A and The Three Faces of Eve were also turned down. The remainder of the decade was a personal and professional decline for Judy. However, Judy Garland was not through with television. She was just getting started. Let there be Judy. Let there be Dean. Let there be Frank. You know what we mean. Let there be bluebirds. A lark and a dog. But first of all. Judy Garland's triumphant return to television in 1962 was the cherry on top of a career comeback of epic proportions. Not only had the early 1960s seen Judy regain her health, but a series of professional triumphs that saw restored confidence and direction that had just simply dwindled in the last few years of the previous decade. She'd received a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for a straight dramatic role in Judgment at Newmanburg completed a successful North American content tour and became the first woman to win Album of the Year Grammy Award for Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall, an album which also collected a further four Grammys. Personally and professionally, she was back on top. Television had also moved on, with now over 90% of American homes having their own television by 1960 and the introduction of videotape in 1957. The medium offered a larger audience and more creative freedom and security than ever before. Given the new changes on both sides, the relationship with CBS and Judy was smoothed over. The challenges of the past seemingly forgotten at the thought of future benefits for both parties involved. Judy's new management team resolved the dormant legal battle in 1960 and promptly announced that a comeback special was in development. Originally titled Miss Show Business, and then later renamed simply The Judy Garland Show, featured Judy with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra as her guests. The show was filmed over three evenings, and this time was not only a rating smash, but also blew away the critics. One such reporter claimed, quote, Judy Garland held television in the palm of her hand last night, unquote. The show aired in February 1962, and a confident new Judy walked out onto the runway lit stage with the letters J-U-D-Y in light bulbs behind her, as if to say, I'm back. If Judy had proved once again that she could handle the performance aspect of the media, it would be her December 1962 talk show appearance as the guest on the Jack Parr program that cemented her as an all-round TV personality. Whenever we do that little dance up the yellow brick road, yeah, I remember that. I was supposed to be with them. Yeah, you know, they crowd shut. They'd shut me out. I, they'd close in, and the three of them, and I would be in back of them dancing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, and I, I wasn't, I wasn't good enough you know to say wait a minute now and so the director victor fleming was darling man he was always up on a boom would say hold it you three dirty hands let that little girl in there <laughs> for the first time she was given the platform to showcase her legendary sense of humor comedic timing and unique storytelling ability Unscripted and on best form, she recalled hilarious anecdotes from her film and vaudeville career. The Jack Parr appearance and the Judy Garland special resulted in negotiations with three main television networks for a weekly Judy Garland series. The winner, CBS, who closed what was reported at the time to be the biggest talent deal in TV history. A $24 million deal for four seasons of the Judy Garland show was created. A weekly variety show which would feature various guests was planning to launch for the 1963-64 television season. Although initially daunted by the pressure of such an undertaking, the deal would offer Judy the financial security she was seeking and the opportunity to work in one location for most of the year. Judy also impressed television audiences on the other side of the Atlantic when she appeared on Sunday Night at the Palladium. Not since her MGM days some 13 years earlier had British audiences seen her looking so slim, glamorous, and in such fine vocal form. Judy was in London for the UK premiere of her film I Could Go On Singing, and the footage of her performing the title song, Plus Smile, was later aired in the US on The Ed Sullivan Show. While production on the hotly anticipated Judy Garland show would begin in mid-1963, another special was put into production to appease audiences and continue to capitalise on a success. 
This time, it was titled Judy Garland and her guests, Robert Goulet and Phil Silvers. Not since her early career on radio had Judy been given the opportunity to showcase her impeccable comedic timing with a number of comedy sketches alongside musical numbers. Her husky voice was a reflection of the strain due to a manic work schedule since the previous special, which included two films and a preparation for a three-week engagement in Lake Tahoe, which was to begin only four days after filming was completed. While she was physically exhausted, she looked trim in a contemporary wardrobe, which was designed for her by famed costume designer Edith Head. The critics were undecided if her most recent special matched the impact of her 1962 show, but all were agreed that Judy was back on top and eagerly awaited what a weekly television show would offer. In order to document in detail the complex production that resulted in 26 episodes of The Judy Garland Show, we'd need another couple of hours. The roller coaster that ensued was essentially made up of two directors, three producers, various writers, a network chief with limited investment and an exhausted star doing everything she could to make it work. The show was initially planned to be filmed in New York, but this was then changed to Hollywood in order for Judy to create what she hoped would be a more permanent base with her children. The show would be pre-taped in black and white, which would give them the creative freedom to pre-record, edit and retake should they choose to. The challenge wasn't so much about the production itself, but delivering a formula for the show that worked on a weekly basis. The first concept for the show was to follow the winning format of the last two specials, showcasing Judy as a larger than life living legend in which every show truly was an event. She was given the glamour treatment with the contemporary 1960s wardrobe and hairstyles to match. This also showcased her dramatic weight loss. Five programs were filmed in this format and championed by producer George Shatler. CBS, however, had other ideas. They envisioned a more down-to-earth image for Judy, which they felt would make her appeal more to audiences on a weekly basis. Producing essentially a special every week, they felt, wouldn't be the right format. So after five episodes were completed, Shatler was dismissed along with his team of writers and Norman Jewison was brought on board to switch up the format. Judy was dressed down and the script writers were aimed to make her more the girl next door type in a bid to connect more on a one-to-one -one level with Americans in their homes. The Judy Garland show premiered in September 1963 with eight episodes of various formats already completed. In order to gain the most traction with what CBS believed to be the winning format, the episodes were not aired in chronological order, but seemingly based on the strength of the guest star. The reviews were mixed, which was in part due to the ever-changing formula of the show and the vulture-like nature of the tabloids simply waiting to see her fail. Not only that, but the show appeared to be a victim of its weekly Sunday time slot, one which was referred to as, quote, the suicide slot, unquote, by comedian Danny Kay due to its clash with the highest rated show on television at the time, Bonanza, and another variety show, The Ed Sullivan Show. The show attracted an abundance of A-list guests which included Ethel Merman, Peggy Lee, Bobby Darren, Liza Minnelli, and a young Barbara Streisand. Judy was reunited with friends and peers of her days at MGM such as June Allison, Mickey Rooney, and the scarecrow himself, Ray Bulger. Judy brought down the house each episode, whether it be through her outstanding vocal delivery, hilarious storytelling, or both. But the lack of direction from CBS, specifically Chief James Aubrey, who had an acute dislike for Judy and what she could bring, the show was suffering. Despite everyone's best efforts, it was clear moving into 1964 that the formula was still not right and Jewison was dismissed. CBS brought in a third and final producer, Bill Colloran, who, much to the network's distaste, stripped back the format, gave Judy a mic and let her do what she does best, sing. This new concert format would be the basis for the last seven shows, but by this time, it was too late. In January 1964, CBS allowed Judy to announce in an open letter to the press that the Judy Garland show would end after 26 episodes. She stated that she needed to, quote, give her children the time and attention they needed, unquote. The truth was that CBS had once again failed her. 
She had delivered her end of the bargain and the hopes of financial independence, success and security had seemingly evaporated. The network had never fully been behind the show or offered a clear leadership despite her belief and efforts. Looking back today, the 26 episodes of The Judy Garland Show and the hours of outtake footage that remains give us an amazing record of this part of her career. Many of the pre-recordings and live performances on the show have served as a main documentation of Judy's work during this part of her career and showcase her outstanding vocal ability and comedic flair. I'm tired of living, but scared of dying, and I'll cancellation of the Judy Garland show was a huge setback both professionally and personally for Judy. She'd strived so much to deliver and not been given the stability, leadership or the support from those around her. Physically she was exhausted and worn out but she was still riding the wave of career success the decade had brought. Once again losing her confidence in television and film offers being pretty scarce, Judy returned to the stage. A disastrous tour of Australia occurred, followed by more negative headlines after an accidental overdose in Japan. Her return to London was documented on television in November 1964, when her performance at the Palladium with daughter Liza Minnelli was part broadcast on ITV. Unfortunately, the performance was edited from its 130 minutes to 50 minutes for viewing time. Most of the footage being from the second evening and focusing towards the end of the show when she was not in the best voice. Judy's second appearance on the Jack Parr programme was also filmed in London following her Palladia appearance with Liza. Whilst Parr later claimed she was, quote, high on everything, unquote, she recalled various anecdotes with humour and charm intact. When asked about her living legend status, she simply claimed it was lonely. Many Judy Garland biographers often cite the end of the Judy Garland show as the beginning of the end for Judy. True, there wouldn't be another special or a show centered purely around Judy, but she would make another 20 appearances as either guest or guest host over the next five years of her career. The quality of her performances in these appearances does vary as health issues and personal and professional pressures plagued her throughout the remainder of her life. In early 1965, Judy went into rehearsal for a 12-minute live televised musical segment at the Academy Awards. Let down this time by a dull musical arrangement of Cole Porter tunes, she was in good voice, albeit pretty nervous about appearing in front of her largest television audience in three years. Nevertheless, she received a standing ovation from her peers. Headlines at this time questioned if her vocal ability was waning and if her triumphant successes of a few years previous being at the level that she could no longer sustain. Her appearances on The Andy Williams Show, and the Ed Sullivan show in late 1965 were both conflicting. While the former, filmed in colour and still available today, shows her in a great comedic sketch but poor voice. The latter, she delivers a performance not seen since the television series. Judy rounded off the year with her first guest hosting appearance on The Hollywood Palace, an hour-long variety show which was hosted by a different celebrity guest each week and televised in colour. By 1966, Judy's public reputation was at an all-time low, mainly due to constant negative headlines circulating around her financial affairs, legal battles, personal health, and her alleged substance abuse issues. Many of these issues she was attempting to correct herself after a lack of support by those around her, specifically her previous management and ex-husbands. This period of resting well and then dealing with various pressures is pretty apparent in her television appearances from this year. Her February 1966 appearance on Perry Como's Craft Music Hall saw her in renewed vocal ability, and the same month a successful appearance on the Sammy Davis Jr. show resulted in a host asking her back for the following week live on air, to which she agreed. 
Pressure on her health was caused by the stress of bankruptcy, the failure of her fourth marriage to Mark Herron, and the news that Capitol Records, with whom she'd been signed since 1954, had opted not to renew her recording contract. Horrific mismanagement of her financial affairs, an area of business which Judy always stated she wanted no part of, resulted in any record and television royalties being seized to repay extortionate tax debts. Understandably, she was struggling to cope with the pressures, but eager to remain working, her second guest hosting of the Hollywood Palace in April was ill-received. Colour footage survives of a sans hair and makeup Judy rehearsing What the World Needs Now. As she reaches for the last big note and hits it, she's seen crossing her fingers and rolling her eyes as if in silent prayer to be able to deliver on the show later that evening. The footage was frequently circulated to insinuate that this was her televised performance and her dishevelled look was due to being either drunk or medicated. The reality was that Judy was rehearsing her performance and praying she'd be able to deliver, but wasn't yet camera ready. Whilst retaining good humour, she introduced guests but sometimes with slurred speech and struggled on some of the notes of her standard songs. In a terrible display, she tore up her dressing room in a rage which resulted in her essentially being blacklisted from primetime television and marked the lowest point in her career at that point. She wouldn't sing again on television for over two years. A 12-month hiatus from television followed, whether voluntary or involuntary. This is a significant period of absence for a performer with no recording contract and film deal happening. Judy's return to the small screen in March 1967 was a television interview with a young Barbara Walters. The colour interview is possibly the most candid we have in which a frail-looking Judy discusses her childhood, rumours around chemical dependency, the press, her turbulent relationship with her mother and The Wizard of Oz. Her small size and frame was showcased when she was asked to stand up next to her 14-year-old daughter Lorna, who towered over her. That same month, she had a fleeting appearance on the popular show What's My Line? The concept of the show, a blindfolded panel of guests would be required to guess the celebrity based on a series of questions around their said vocation. Entering the stage and signing in as Judy Garland generated huge applause from the studio audience. Asked if it was movies that she specialised in, Judy shrugged and gave a sign for both yes and no. Upon exiting the show, she made this announcement. Thank you, John. Thank you and very I think much. I was supposed to mention a picture I'm going to do. You do uh, that. Valley of the Dolls. Oh, <laughs> that's something. That's a story. I'm the, I'm the only one in the book that doesn't take pills. <laughs> <laughs> Judy would be fired from the film after only a couple of days filming. Having appeared to have lost yet another great opportunity, she quickly appeared on the Jack Parr show, ironically titled, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to Hollywood. This effort to show that she was seemingly well backfired. Judy Mock cried when he hinted at her recent dismissal from the project. Originally filmed in colour but only a grainy black and white print survives which shows Judy again recalling stories from her earlier career. Sporting a helmet-style bob and wearing a leopard print outfit, she appeared medicated, which fueled further rumours of drinking and unreliability that went hand-in-hand with the media headlines at the time. By the late 1960s, the talk show format had been tried and tested for over a decade, and the standard of television was often pre-recorded, unscripted, and now in living colour. Her final six television appearances in 1968 featured Judy in various states of voice, but allowed her to be completely herself. An appearance on the daytime Mike Douglas show from August 1968 was a time of reflection as she supplied the commentary on a series of film stills, including shots from Easter Parade, A Star Is Born, and of course, The Wizard of Oz. She was also talked into giving an ad hoc performance of Somewhere Over the Rainbow, a song which she'll be forever identified, but wasn't commonly part of her television repertoire. Four television appearances were made in December 1968, but only two of which are still in existence. The Dick Cabot show still exists, but in a poor, jumpy black and white copy. Actor Lee Marvin was late for his appearance on the show, and Judy went on first in his spot, to which she joked, quote, Good, it wasn't me for a change, unquote. Due to her time slot changing, hair and makeup were not done to her usual standard, and she claimed that if she was looking well, it was just because of her good spirit. 
Four days later, she taped an appearance on The Tonight Show, which would turn out to be her final surviving television appearance. Ladies and gentlemen, what can you say? The great Judy Garland. A powerful and emotional delivery of two songs, It's All For You and After The Holidays, are performed in a softer and more fragile approach, as if almost foreboding. Looking frail, but lovely, her legendary humour is intact with playful banter with Johnny Carson and guests in between songs. A big disappointment for many a Garland fan is the lack of existence of a final two television appearances. Two appearances on the Merv Griffin show pre-taped in December 1968, but not aired until January 1969, captured some of the vigour and glamour and delivery of five years before. Judy was joined on the former appearance by the host who asked, after Judy's playful suggestion, if she would consider stepping in as host the following week whilst he was on vacation. Happy to oblige, Judy hosted the show the following week in fine form. Griffin has since confirmed that the shows no longer exist and only colour photographs and audio segments remain. This was common industry practice as tapes were able to be wiped and reused once programmes had aired, a rather short-sighted view of the future value of some of the content. By all accounts, Judy was in fine form and clearly relishing in her albeit temporary role as guest host. When critic Rex Reed brought up the story of her 1954 Best Actress Oscar loss to Grace Kelly, Judy quipped, let the princess keep it. When finding herself reunited with Margaret Hamilton, the wicked witch to her Dorothy some 30 years after The Wizard of Oz, she asked her one last time to show off that wicked laugh. Room called the bus. Oh, <laughs> darling. I missed you. Well, I missed you're my you favorite for so witch. Long. <laughs> I better be. And well, I always I think you're everybody's well, favorite lady. Laugh, just do that wicked me laugh. <laughs> Six months before her passing in January 1969, Judy made what would be her final television appearance. As a favour to the producers of the popular UK variety show Sunday Night at the Palladium, Judy stepped in last minute to cover Lena Horne, who was otherwise indisposed. She arrived at the venue 10 minutes before she was due to go on stage. She then insisted that her overture be played, inserting a three-minute musical number into an otherwise fast-paced live variety show gave the illusion that something backstage was amiss. Her lack of rehearsal due to stepping in last minute resulted in confirming this impression when she stumbled over the words to her first song. American television audiences had seen Judy in recent years, but mass UK audiences found her gaunt appearance, ill-fitting outfit and lyrical blunders simply a sad confirmation of the headlines. A silent 16-second black-and-white clip of Judy taking her bows would turn out to be her farewell to television. Television for Judy Garland was both friend and foe. It was a new medium that she was required to become acquainted with and expected to conquer during the latter half of her career. A medium that at times promised the security, stability and consistency that she once knew at a film studio, but equally overworked and failed her in the same vein. She was trying to entertain whilst television was establishing itself as a mass entertainment format. From her initial television variety shows to the final guest hosting appearance, it's safe to say Judy did her best that she could with the support she had. It now serves as an outstanding documentation of her later work and some of the best vocal performances in entertainment. On television, Judy isn't playing a character. She was herself, the good and the bad. This was often why she took the harsh critiques so personally but equally why people enjoyed her humour, sensitivity and incredible talent. Judy Garland may be best remembered for her role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz or Mickey Rooney's teenage sidekick or Vicky Lester in A Star Is Born. But if you want to get a glimpse of the real Judy, her impressive body of television work she left behind is what we have left to appreciate this once-in-a-lifetime talent. The following conversation was recorded during the UK lockdown. While Ben's mic is clear, mine isn't as clear as I'd like it to be. Ben and I have known each other since 2002 and I wanted to have him as my first guest when discussing all things Judy. I'm speaking with Ben, who is, how would you describe yourself, Ben? Well, if you'd have asked me, is it 
nearly 20 years ago, it was Judy underscore, it was Judy Garland Freak at Hotmail.com. Judy underscore Garland underscore Fanatic at Hotmail.com. <laughs> you know what, that, that actually rings a bell. So how did we first meet? It was around 2002, 2003. I was just looking, do you remember the Judy Garland database? Yes. And they used to have a guest book before forums came in. And um, I remember going through this guest book and I used to post on this like maybe twice a day. And, you know, there wasn't many other 12 year, 12 year old lads, 12 year old boys in the UK that were writing on this Judy Garland guest book. And then there was one from a guy called Paul who was 12 years old and he provided <laughs> a link to his website. <laughs> Listen, that was really high tech then. XX, we love Judy XX. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I started making websites myself because you did. I thought to myself, well, if this 12-year-old lad's doing it, I've got to do it. Um, well, I think that it's before it was before Instagram and obviously before YouTube and everything. So that's pretty high tech. It was way, way before then. And I remember just have when I started to make my own website and you started to make your own website, we thought we was it when we got our own guest book. This was even before, <laughs> this was even before forums. So yeah, just to carry on, how mm. I actually met you was that I stalked your website for quite a bit, and then I, you finally put a working email. I tried to email you a few times, but you put the wrong email address on, and then you finally updated it with the correct one, and then that's how we started getting in touch. And then you thought I was. Um, <laughs> I know you're gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought you were gonna murder you, me. You can keep this in, Paul. <laughs> this is a true story, Paul. Uh, I was the same age as Paul. I'm, I'm literally a month older than him, and I think he sent me an email one day trying to get me to admit that I was considerably older. <laughs> <laughs> but you weren't. It's fine. I've seen your driver's license or whatever it is now. I'll check your because, ID. <laughs> yeah, you took the ID. It's because my voice had broken before yours as well. Yeah, no, I sounded like a little girl. You did sound like a little girl and used to laugh like a little girl as well. I remember that. <laughs> I still do. <laughs> no, we laugh like old so, women now. Just, um, one of the things that I was thinking of is, you know, you go on YouTube now and you pretty much, in oh terms my. of content, got everything. And um, what lengths did we have to go to? To get well, that. that's what I was going to talk about because I thought, how did you know? How did we first get access to Judy Garland's TV work? And we know how we did because it was all on VHS. Well, you can thank me. Yeah, yeah, you got it through me. Really, we've got to give credit to John Fricky. I mean, he slaved tirelessly over copying. I think there was like eight VHSs. That must have taken a long. Time. And I think he would have had to have stopped and started on different laser discs as well and different reels and stuff like that. So yeah. we've got, I've, I've really got to, I'm still ever so grateful that he was, that he did that for yeah. us. I mean, this is not my invitation to say for people who are listening to this to go out and have John Fricky saying, can you send us all those tapes? Um, it was, it was a time when you didn't have easy access to this and the easiest way that you used to get this was when people were on, you remember people were trying to sell them online for like $50 a show. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of content that I actually didn't even know existed. Yeah. Um, was. That wasn't well, it wasn't well documented anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but I do remember receiving that box and it was, it was like a huge, I mean, VHS tips aren't exactly light, but you get it. And then he'd actually put together um, a full list of yes. shows. Yes, he did. Um, yes, he did. I don't know if I would have really understood because some of it wasn't great quality. Um, some of it was just like home movie quality because I don't know where he got it from archive places, but um, it was really, I've still got it actually. Um, it is at home, but I, I haven't felt the need to use There's probably stuff on there really thinking about it that might not be on YouTube. There is plenty of stuff actually that were on those that weren't on YouTube and different like extensions of it um like for example her appearance on dick cavett yeah uh, what we have on those tapes is a much longer version of that show what we have is uh extended version of, of in a lot of instances of what's out there on youtube like on the dick cavett show 
uh, when Lee Marvin finally comes on because he was late. And you get to see her interacting as part of his interview as well. And that's not out there on YouTube. And actually, one of my favourite moments from that interview happens when he's being interviewed. Because, like I said, he was late. He turned up late and Dick Cavett says to him, uh, well, our interview with you is... um, uh, has to be cut short because you did turn up late and he's he's very sour sour faced and very stern faced and all Judy did all you can hear Judy do is just slap her hip and say it wasn't me for a change <laughs> and you, yeah but I bet it brought down the house though literally yeah it, it did, did. It's it's still one of my favourite moments from that and that's not on there so yeah. it's not it's not on YouTube so it's really nice that I can remember that yeah, I feel like I need to go back with a fine tooth comb and have a look. And I think in preparation for this um, actual episode, and I've really looked at things with a fine tooth comb, really, um, more so some of the earlier work. So, you know, Ford Star Jubilee, General Electric. What, what do you think about that stuff? What, what do you think about those early ones? Well, I, especially Ford Star, because she'd just come off, you know, this really successful vaudeville comeback. You know, it was in between her going back to the palace and touring Europe and after a star is born and she just returned to the stage again. So, and TV had just become this huge format and it was really kind of her being able to put across on television what she was doing at the time and what she was really known for at that time. And I think in a case like Four Star Jubilee, despite all of its, you know, all of the the troubles that went into the pre-preparation and everything, it turned out really well. My memory serves me well. I think it was live, the Ford Star Jubilee. And was General Electric Theatre live as well? I think they were both live. I think that was like one of the main reasons for nerves because she wasn't in the best voice on either of them. Um, Well, she was... Electric is better than the Ford Star, but I know a lot of people don't think that because it's a bit more stylized, shall we say? Yeah, it was very, it was, but those, when she did General Electric Theatre, what was that in 1956? What was, what I thought was quite interesting is that the feedback from Ford Star Jubilee was literally everything they said that they didn't like about it. They changed it in General Electric. So they put her in, you know, she lost weight. They put her in skimpier clothes. They stylized it differently and it still didn't really hit the mark mm-hmm. with Ford Star Jubilee it was an hour and a half special yeah and it was filmed it was filmed live and it's gone through all the challenges to get to that point and General Electric Theatre was only half an hour wasn't it in support of another album as well where she was singing more less standard standardized songs and more yeah because that was the feedback a lot it wasn't as well received because a lot of the songs that she sang they weren't as known and obviously it was in 30, 30 minutes. So the kind scope, so basically what they used to do is that they used to record the TV screen on film so they can literally document it. That's oh, why right. the live broadcast wouldn't stay. But they banned them after the, tele, um, the televising because apparently they said she was too leggy. She was chewing too much leg, so it got banned. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. Well- well, she was known for her legs. She had legs. She was four foot eleven. Yeah. That's all she was. She was leg. Yeah, but apparently they didn't want to see that in the living room, so it was banned. They wouldn't bat an eyelid to anything like that these days. So you've got the two early specials, and then mm-hmm. you have quite a bit of a gap because there was the whole messy lawsuit. They broke the contract, and then she goes obviously and does you know the comeback. She has Carnegie Hall. She's got Judgment and Newmanberg, Best Supporting Actress, Oscar nomination. Um, she's got new management so mm. the comeback to that really is obviously the Judy Garland show episode with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin well in between General Electric and going to back to CBS to do the Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin special you know she she did have a very successful concert touring career mm. Bef- even before she was you know in the late 50s 59, 1960 she was hospitalised with near life threatening hepatitis and yeah. she worked herself up to that point. Like the moment she stopped is the moment that she went into the hospital and she was working tirelessly and to great reviews up into that point. And mm. even though they told her you'll be a semi-invalid for the rest of your life and it's very unlikely that you'll sing again. She, she went on to do that incredible, incredible comeback. Yeah. With with the North American tour, which stopped her 
Carnegie Hall and the Hollywood Bowl, amongst other places. And she toured Europe in support of JFK in 1960 as well. Yeah. And, and then and the success of that, that renowned success as well, because she really reinvented herself after in after 1959 and after the health scare that aim that you know that contributed to that kind of success because it wasn't it wasn't vaudeville anymore it was just her it was a one it she didn't rely on those on those kind of gimmicks anymore she didn't need to it was just her and an orchestra and it went astoundingly well and i think that's what made the special with frank sinatra so well because when she wasn't performing with them it was just her kind of set yeah and what was interesting about that one is obviously that's after 1957, so they've got the ability to pre-tape it. So you get uh-huh. so much quality in terms of what you can do. So that's filmed over three days instead of yeah. literally go on, do it for 90 minutes. And yeah. if you make a mistake, then you know there's 10 million people watching you. Yeah. Um, I thought like one of my ones, favourites that I love, you know, the Jack Parr interview, because obviously that's a bit of a game changer, really, isn't it? Yeah, because that was the first time where you got to see... Judy Garland, the personality on TV. She'd never done anything like that before on television where she's just had to sit down and speak. And it was the first time that you, you, she'd been invited into people's living rooms just to talk. And yeah. again, this was, you know, she was really riding the crest of a wave of a very successful comeback here. And she was really, I think she was very, very rejuvenated and she was looking fantastic as well. She looked so good in that, didn't she? she? looks incredible and she's wearing something that really is well fitted to her body type you know she said she's four foot eleven she was three quarter leg and the rest is torso so and people that have dressed her have said that she was you know she was very difficult to dress because of that so she was wearing something that suited her so well she was in fine voice and she was in the uh, such a great spirit as well i mean it might have had something to do with i think it was about two weeks after that she signed the 24 million dollar deal with cbs <laughs> <laughs> so maybe she was in a good mood because of that. Well, maybe not only was... that. Well, not only that. You know, she she everything that had happened. You know, she was as I said, she was riding that crest. She'd come back to film. Uh, you know, not in the kind of sense that she had once been in film, but it was successful. Mm. She was making and she was promote. Actually, she was promoting Gay Paris on that as well. That's, yeah, that's the reason why she stopped by. But then, obviously, <clears throat> in March, early '63. She has Judy Garland and a guest. So you've got Phil Silvers and Robert Goulet. Yeah. Um, do you know what? Actually, this it's interesting because this one doesn't seem to be floating around on YouTube. I I know, I've noticed that one. I've noticed yeah, that. Because I actually don't think I've seen it in a while. Not since no, I had the kids because I always liked it. It's definitely, I mean, her vocal performances, I mean, it's coming off the back of I Could Go On Singing, which had just been released as well. And she's opening with that incredible performance of By Myself. And it, she's proving that she's really kind of got control over herself in this mediumship of television. Because, you know, back in however many, eight years earlier when she was doing Four Star Jubilee and General Electric, she was absolutely terrified yeah. of television. Absolutely yeah. terrified. And I, I think if you go back to look at that earlier work, as much as she's she's being Judy, you can tell a bit that she's, yeah. she's apprehensive and a bit scared. <clears throat> Whereas on the 62 and 63 specials that she did, she's in full control of herself. Yeah. And I think a lot of it you can tell just by the, the shape of her voice. You know, she's got laryngitis on the first two, two TV appearances that she has. She's obviously run down, tired. Uh, and whatever but also you know if you think about the Judy Garland in the guest episode you know she's just secured that deal with CBS so it's probably a confidence thing as yeah. well I suppose with a bit more pressure yeah. because really after that it's just full launch into the Judy Garland show it is have you seen all the episodes like what's your exposure to this because I hadn't seen all of them and I still don't think I've seen every single one if I'm honest I have seen all of them uh, um but I'd say only once, because again, it was, we, we come from a time where, and a place, unfortunately we come from a place that, in the UK, we really was not exposed to much. It wasn't like no. we, when the, in the late nineties, when Pioneer were releasing all 26 episodes on DVD, we couldn't just walk to Tower Records and get it ourselves. It was very difficult to get hold of. You have to watch it by, by bootleg. So if you, 
if you got so, it. Do you remember they, they used to have these? I remember seeing them. They used to do a couple of releases, and this is what used to drive me insane. So they'd say it's the Judy Garland show, but you'd only have like about four discs on it, and it would just be like, yeah, it would be hit bits from it. And it's so frustrating because it's like, just release it complete. It was, I can remember, it was the Frank Sinatra special. It was yeah. like a compilation of like, I think one was called Just Judy. Yeah. And it was the Christmas episode. That's the only one that we've really ever seen a full release of in this country. Yeah. Is the yeah. Christmas episode. And the other one, maybe it was Judy and her friends with Robert Goulet and Phil Silver. Yes, I think it was. With a terrible transfer. But they, they all were. I they think were they all were terrible. So I went to America in 2004 and literally was more excited about going into their DVD shop than actually going to Universal Studios, which is the whole reason I was actually there. And do you remember, I, I think I showed you, I brought like one DVD of it and there was only like three episodes on it and I still have it now. And it wasn't only till recently that I got one of the trunks, but then realized when I opened it that still there's episodes missing because I thought that one of the trunks had all the episodes in. No. And why are they no, not in right order? <laughs> oh, I know, I, I know. Insane, but I'm a stickler for order. Oh, I know. <laughs> I couldn't understand it because I opened it and it was like, it just it just was like 11, 13, 15, 18. And I thought, and two. hang on a second. Yeah, I don't understand. <laughs> but the thing is, these aren't cheap now. <laughs> I think I must have paid about 90 quid for that one on eBay. And that was a bargain. I got the full full trunk set with yeah. extra DVDs. I pretty much got all but one volume for £25. How? It was on eBay and yeah. I was I was watching it like a hawk and they kept reducing the price. I think it must have started at something like £120 and then it came down to yeah. £80 and then it went down to £50 at around four o'clock that afternoon and then I checked it around 6 30 or something and I just went back on and looked at it and it was 24.99 by now now by now by now I was shaking <laughs> I was sweating you put your password in yeah and I was like and then it confirmed and I just kind of collapsed so if I see this then so you know there's so much around the Judy Garland show in you know in terms of was it a success? Why was it cancelled? What do you think? I just don't... I think there were too many cooks. Well, they had three producers. And to me, I think it, a lot of it was upstairs po at politics as well. And by that, Jim Aubrey, he was by no means a Judy Garland fan at all. Yeah. And I don't think he really prepared himself or really really knew what it, how to support this woman and help to navigate her through a medium that she wasn't an expert in but that he yeah. was i don't think she had the right support system there i think they just they painted the back back of the stage with a yellow brick road leading to a trailer and just thought oh yeah this will make her feel right at home and i think she just went out there and she did her absolute best and some of that they, it's true what they say this show is the best public record that we have of judy garland and live performer mm. and Another great record, Annie, of her telling stories, but it went through different and too many different formats that it just it doesn't feel fully realised. And I don't think that was her fault. I think yeah. she she went out there and did what she she knew how to what what she knew how to do. She knew how to tell stories. She knew how to go out and sing. TV's not her business. In hindsight, I think now we can we can just enjoy it and we can and i think the dvd release is great because all the, all the outtakes and all the extended footage was great amazing and some of the songs that she like some of the some of the, the vocal performances that she did on this is just you know the second to none to anyone yeah. i mean like watching her sing old man river i was just you took the words right out of my mouth because oh i always go for that as a comparison, I'm actually going to play a clip of it on the on the this episode just for people who haven't heard it because I think it, it blows me away. Oh, every time when she reaches that last crescendo of the song and it's just she goes in from "I'm tired of living but scared of dying" and then she just lets it let them have it. 
<laughs> it is so good though, honestly. I, I that, that that is so funny that you mentioned that because that is the that's the song I always pick. I am scalped, decapitated, and left gagging for more. And I still listen to that, you know, because it's if you haven't listened to it, guys, it is on Spotify. It is on Apple Music. <laughs> you can listen yep. to it. But even like the other performances, like Smoke Gets in Your Eyes, it's, they're, they're fantastic by any yeah. standard, any standard yeah. entertainment. These are, gr- this is first class entertainment. So yeah. we can just enjoy it these days. And I think just to answer your question, like 50, like 50 years later, 50 plus years later, I think we can say, yes, it was successful. It's, yeah. Stood the test of time and it's aged beautifully. Yeah, because that's what I was gonna say as well. You know, the actual, you know, from a technical aspect and the quality of the film, it's it's clear and it's crisp. Yeah, it's in black and white, but it it looks good. But even so, just even that aside, the quality of the actual entertainment, the guest stars, her yeah. herself, in whatever the format of the show was, it's just aged well. We can still enjoy it today, and it's still be exciting to watch or emotional to watch every time that i revisit different clips of it it feels to me just as relevant now as what it what it what i hope it felt like back then what about post judy garland show though because i always i look at her tv career in almost like three chapters obviously the main tip being the judy garland show but this such a change in performance following that um and i think that's kind of where her tv appearance is really ramped up but What's your kind of like fa- favorite post Judy Garland show appearance? Perry Como's Craft Music Hall is up there. I think her vocal, I think she delivered two of the best vocal deliveries of her latter day career just in that space of eight minutes there with yeah. What Now My Love and Just In Time. Just in time is amazing. I actually watched that. That's that's on YouTube as well. If anyone wants to check that out, because that's uh, amazing. What now, my love? Going straight into just in time again, second to none. She's in fine voice. She's in, and she's looking well as well. What people fail to understand at times is that you know, I don't really like to discuss like her health state too much because I think at this point, as as a fan and as an admirer of the work. It's just, it shouldn't be relevant. She made attempts on her own to, you know, rid herself of her dependency. And yeah. I think, I believe at this time when she was doing Craft Musical was one of those times she'd gained some weight. She looked great and sounded fantastic. A little dry, but that happened. But it's, 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 it's interesting though, because on this time, and I'm looking at like the order, but you've got, you know, Craft Musical, and then you've literally got the same month, um, Sammy Davis Jr. show, which you did two episodes of. And then you've got one month later, you've got a host in the Hollywood Palace. So it seems to be like, bam, bam, bam. Yeah. And this was all in an era as well. This was all in a time frame where she was considered really inactive. And, you know, because she wasn't performing as many concerts. And there's always this misconception as well that after the Judy Garland show was cancelled, that that's, that was like the beginning of the end. And everything else that followed was just part of the downward, spi- the downward spiral, quotation marks. When in that time between the Judy Garland show finishing and up until her last performance, three months before she passed, she gave us some pretty damn good stuff. I think it's fair to say that in the, the post-Judy Garland show, appearances on television and, and in concert, the quality varied. Like, for example, you just said, um, from Craft Musical, she went to do two appearances on the Sammy Davis Jr. show. Whereas on the sa- first of the Sammy Davis Jr. show, she was in fine form. Whereas on the second, she'd contracted, I th- again, another illness. I think it was yeah. laryngitis. And yeah. her performance wasn't as strong. But she still gave it a role. I think it's, and it's, I think even just going on to like some of the latest stuff as well, in terms of not so much the actual performing, but the interviews. I mean, Barbara Walters, that interview, I think, aside from... Well, really, in terms of colour footage and being so candid, it's probably the the best one, really. Well, I think it's really the only full-length candid conversation that she actually ever did for television, because there was the rest of her television interviews were very much a kind of banter with the host. 
so and she was just asked to recall stories back from vaudeville and relaying back to like films that she did etc cetera, etc cetera. so she wasn't really you know barbara walters was a different kind of interviewer and she, she asked questions that other people weren't asking her so she was really given a platform to express herself differently in that and i think that's what makes that that interview really sweet Another one that I think is worth mentioning, Mike Douglas. I always thought this one was really cute because they they look at the pictures. I like that one. And she's wearing a dress that she designed herself. And she's really proud of it as well. And she's in fine form again. Even even though she looks heavy, she looks fantastic. She's telling great stories. And I, one thing I like about this one is because I she made so many films that Every time I, I watch this interview, I'm always like, amazed that she remembers everybody saying. Well, it's funny because I feel like <laughs> there's like a group effort, isn't there? And she's thinking, it's not a radio show. <laughs> Who is it? I don't and understand. And obviously we know, but yeah. that must be really hard. Because she, it's probably, it's like recalling some work that you did when you were, what, 14, 15? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was 30 years prior to that interview. Yeah, and I don't imagine that film in 1968 was circulating much, except like late night television, perhaps. Even if it's that. But no, yeah, you know, when that moment when she finally twigs on, she was like, oh, it's from a movie. And I'm like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, it is. Another one of my favourites from the later day. There isn't much footage of it, but I love her Gypsy Rose Lee show. Isn't it just the audio that I've seen? I've only yeah. heard the audio. Yeah, but to listen to her. Again, she recalls a really obscure film in there that you would think that she'd just forgotten about. And um, she's talking about the first time that she worked with Mickey Rooney on a film. And, you know, when you're going back like 30 years, you'd think that she would just say something like, oh, I starred in Love... Uh, it was in the Andy Hardy series. And she was like, it was a film where he played a jockey. And I'm like, yes, yes, it is. <laughs> I don't think a lot of people, again, at that time would have probably remembered that one as much as others. But we we know it now. We know it. Some of her final TV appearances don't exist anymore. So obviously when she was the guest host, so Merv was in. So oh, that December 68 film mm-hmm. and then aired January 1969. So it really is, you know, quite towards, towards the end. I haven't listened to all the audio. Have you listened to much of it? Well, they were both in 60, December of 68. She came as a guest the first time on Merv Griffin, and then the second time she played guest host. I think the 1969 appearance you're talking about is when she returned to Sunday Night at the Palladium. Yes, that's the one. That is lost, apart from maybe five seconds of her coming onto the stage. Ah, do you know what? It's been so long since I've listened to any of the audio from Merv Griffin. I remember, I remember that, with Merv Griffin, Margaret Hamilton came on and she just did yes. Wicked the West laugh. Yes, she did. She was sat in the, I believe she was sat in the audience and Judy spotted her and she got her to come on stage and they had, you know, a very candid little chat. And then before Margaret left, she just said, oh, do that Wicked laugh. And then she did it. And it's kind of taught and it sounded exactly the same as how she did it when she played the Wicked Witch. Kind of scary. But yeah, there isn't much floating around out there about uh, of those last two shows of the yeah. Merv Griffin that I know about anyway. I mean, well, they've been, they've been confirmed. Merv Griffin actually confirmed that the shows don't exist anymore, and it was something to do with how they stored the tapes and the the, the, uh, the tapes were wiped. So I think there's a couple of really grainy things that someone's recorded from the TV. Yes, uh, I do remember. I do remember that, and I think we ha- we actually had that on our tapes. I think we did, yeah, because they, they tried to marry it up to some audio and it was a little bit mismatched, but you got a feel of it, but it wasn't the same. I think it's really nice that you've started with the, that we've been able to start this with her television career because people, one of the, one thing I find that's miscon, a misconception about Judy Garland is that on the general consensus of things, she's either Dorothy, either Meet Me in St. Louis or A Star is Born or a concert performer. And a lot of the time, her TV career is often forgotten. And yeah. it's such a shame because she really did master the mediumship of it. And she did so well. And she's given us a great uh, body of work in television that is out there for on the majority now for everyone to enjoy. 
and I, I still don't think it gets the traffic it deserves. It's probably my second favourite medium area of Judy Garland's work. She uh, was able to put across what she was doing on stage and really got a chance to be a storyteller. She could have a daytime talk show and have guests yeah. and just talk. Because when she was when she did the Tea for Two segment, she was warm, she was charming, she was inviting. And people responded really well to her. Can you imagine it, what that would have been like for like half an hour on a on a Wednesday afternoon? I think it would have been amazing. But amazing. But the other thing that I thought was quite interesting is that she she never really got into any of the acting side of things because there was so much going on TV at that time. You know no, she, why? She I know there's a lot of um, I know that she you know certain points in her career she wasn't considered to be as reliable as others. But at the end of the day, if you're putting her on TV, you know doesn't matter whether she's singing or acting, she's still He's still hiring her. Um, can you imagine her on some of the pro- programs? She could have easily done that. I've got nothing to compare it to or, or, or imagine her in because I'm not really familiar with what was popular on television in the late 60s. Yeah. I guess it's a lot. Of, I'm just trying to think what maybe some of the peers are doing. I know there's a lot of um, sitcoms, uh, a lot of things, you know. Can you imagine her on something like Alfred Hitchcock Presents on The Twilight Zone? <laughs> But honestly, as well, this isn't, I'm not presenting an opinion as fact here. This is just my own opinion. I think the medium of mediumship of television after the Judy Garland show, I think she had some apprehension. Don't think she ever fully trusted it again. Maybe that plays in part as well as to why yeah. she didn't develop any further with television. When she could have done, she could have done, like I said, I think she, I personally think she could have been a great host of a daytime talk yeah. show or a nighttime talk yeah. show. With, you know, with the Merv Griffin show, you know, right, right at the end, you know, she was doing the guest host spot. So perhaps that's something, you know, she could have explored, you know, had she been given the opportunity to, you never mm. know. Do you? Yeah. We'll never know. A huge thank you to Ben for being my first guest on the show and just simply sharing my love for Judy since we were 12. You've been listening to the Valley of the Dolls podcast. The content on today's show was researched, written, and edited by Paul Walsh. That's me. Be sure to check out the show notes with a list of resources to everything that I've used throughout the fact-checking process of this podcast. I hope you found the show really informative, and any feedback on research, format, and future content you'd like to see would be really welcomed. If you like what you've heard, then please rate and review. This is going to help others hear about the podcast and support it to grow. If you haven't done already, then please follow the podcast on Instagram at the Valley of the Dolls underscore pod for visual supplements and information on future episodes. And tell your friends. Until next time.